This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Sumi Lee is the head of Judicial Diversity Outreach for the Colorado Judicial Branch. In this podcast, Sumi discusses immigrating to the United States, learning the English language by pocket dictionary in school, and her fearlessness in trying new things. She also discusses the importance of family, authenticity, and why she decided to dedicate her career to increasing diversity on the bench. Sumi is a past president of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Colorado. She is a 2014 graduate of the Colorado Bar Association's Leadership Training Program, and she is also a tireless volunteer and leader in so many of our organizations. Listen in as she sits down with Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza in this episode of Our Voices. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Our Voices. My name is Nicole Sparaza. I am a family law and civil litigator in the Denver metro area, and with me, I have a co-host, Courtney Holm. I'm Courtney Holm, and I'm an attorney and mediator at Courtney Holm & Associates, which is located in Edwards, Colorado, and I serve clients for criminal defense, civil litigation, mediation, and family law. And today we have with us in the studio, Sumi Lee, who is the head of judicial outreach for the Colorado Judicial Branch. Sumi, thank you so much for taking time to join us today in the studio. Thanks for having me here. So the basic format of the podcast, as you know, is who you were, who you are, and who you will be. So I was excited in particular to talk with you today because I find that you have a very interesting story and upbringing. So can you tell us a little bit about growing up? Sure. Um, So I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and I um, was actually a competitive swimmer when I was young, at a very young age. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, before the age of 10, I was swimming very competitively. Um, But when I was 11 years old, my family and I moved to Colorado Springs, where we had some extended family already. So my um, grandparents and family on my mom's side, they've been in Colorado since the late 1970s. So we already had um, some family members here. And so uh, we moved. Uh, I was 11 years old. And um, within two weeks of arriving in the U.S., I started in elementary school. Um, so <laughs> did you know any English before you came to the States? Um, no, you know, in Korea, they try to teach uh, basics of phonics uh, just as an extracurricular option. So I had a little bit of that, but it was just, you know, in the book. So I had never practiced speaking to anyone. Um I remember ordering Coke when the flight attendant asks you what you want to drink, because I think that was the only one that I knew, or like Coca-Cola or something (laughs) like that. Um, No, but I didn't know English at all. And so uh, when I started fifth grade uh, in school, that was, uh, I carried around a dictionary for the first two years of being in school. 
Like an actual like pocket dictionary? Yeah, like and it, it was um, English to Korean on the front end and then Korean to English on the back end so that I, I mean, imagine having to look up every single word in a sentence that you're trying to say to me and you have to look up every single word, right? But you also have to know how to spell it. Well, the person speaking would literally look it up for me and then show it to me and then I would hand it back to them and they would have to look it up and it, it just took forever. Um did this and happen with your teachers too, where they would flip in your dictionary to? I think what it ended up happening was they would try to find some keywords because they realized like they can't look up every like article pronoun, you know. But mm-hmm. they would say like I remember um, when I was in um, recess, somebody said, "Oh, that's really cool." And I was like, what is this word cool? And then so they looked it up and it was like, you know, one of the definitions was like temperature cool. And I was like, this is August. I'm hot outside. I don't know what you're trying to say. (laughs) You know, so the dictionary can't provide some of those meanings. Right. So um, and it was challenging, but I luckily had a fifth grade teacher, Miss Hicks, who um, was encouraging of me to still you know, live your fifth grade normal life despite having some language barriers. So I sang in the school choir and I learned the songs or I um, did like, uh, there was a school play and I did set design. Sounds really fancy, but I basically drew the pictures that appeared in the, behind the stage. You have know, you, have you added artists to your resume? Artist? <laughs> no. <laughs> right, exactly. But Well, so you had this teacher, Mrs. Hicks, that recognized that you needed to be involved and to be engaged in some way, even though language is a bit of a barrier. How meaningful was that for you at that age? I think it was really meaningful because it got me used to being in spaces where I might not feel 100% comfortable, but it gets easier if you try, right? And so... Actually, I feel like I use some of that even today. Um, so I would say just even being an immigrant in America, this is just something you learn, right? That you just figure it out as you go along. And sometimes you learn by doing it. Did you have any other tutoring or any other kind of a, a program or a class that you took to get up to speed in English? Or it was really just this dictionary plan? Um, I did have ESL classes, English as a second language. So they would pull me out of the classroom during English class for the for that one so that I could get a specialized you know, program. And it was literally me, my sister and one other kid in elementary school, because in Colorado Springs, where in the area that I live, um, there weren't too many other immigrants. It was just I, my sister and I were the only Asian students, period, in the entire school. So, Did you bring your competitive swimming with you? Uh, yeah, swimming in Korea was very regimented and demanding. So I actually uh, kind of burned out of swimming at an early age, too. And so I actually did not swim again until my senior year of high school when I decided to try again just uh, to see if I still had it. So, Did um, you still have it? I think I still remembered a lot of what I had learned at an early age. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed swimming my senior year in high school and did pretty well. Did you swim for your high school? I did. And what were your strokes? Um, I did fly, um, IMs, and I did short distance uh, freestyle. Courtney was also a competitive swimmer. That's why I asked those questions. How about you? 
So I was a backstroker originally and then flying and freestyle, but I was just watching the Olympic trials and uh, that young gentleman that leads on the fly, <laughs> leads on the back, leads on the breaststroke, dies on the free, but still wins. I actually forgot that I also do breaststroke too. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> that I... actually was my best stroke. I don't know why I forgot about that. And breaststroke was my weakest. And I can, we had a coach that used to make us swim all the events. So you'd be well-rounded. And he used to tell me, your breaststroke is subpar. And I was like, if we're playing golf, that'd be a good thing. But that's not what that was. So tell us a little bit more about growing up in Colorado Springs. And certainly you mentioned being maybe one of three immigrant kids there. So <laughs> this is a funny story, which is I remember for whatever reason, my mom said to me early on when we came to America, Sumi, um, no one's going to hire you if your name is Sumi on a resume, for whatever reason. She just said, I think she realized. I feel like that's a common story with especially the East Asian cultures and assimilation and needing to have American names. Mm -hmm. So did you adopt an American name? So when I went, so I, when I graduated fifth grade and I went on to middle school, I thought this is my chance where I can try that out. And my mom said, you know, um, yeah, go by a different name. People do it all the time, but just do it early so that you can, you know, people will get used to it. So when I was baptized in the Catholic Church, you choose a baptismal name, and my baptismal name was Angela. So I decided I was going to go by Angela in sixth grade. And of course, there were students that and and you know that knew me from elementary school that were like, "Wait, I thought your name was Sumi." And I was like, "No, it's Angela. It's Angela now." <laughs> but you know, on the first day of class, when the teacher asks you, if you have a different name you go by, raise your hand and say something. But I was super embarrassed to do that. So I did it in some classes and not the others. So in some classes, I was Sumi Lee and the other classes, I was Angela Lee. <laughs> so I have to tell you, my born name was actually Angela. No way. It was because as a sign of respect. So my sis older sister was born in Seoul and her born name was Chung. And my born name in the States was Angela because it was respectful to name your kid in the country that they were born or a name of the country that they were born. So my born name was Angela. And then when I was adopted when I was 10, my sister and I just decided to change our full names. But yeah, that's a really interesting story. And I remember my mom saying, well, you can also abbreviate to abbreviate it to Anne to be cute. And this is what I told Ann Lee, who's the past, current past president of APABA. I was like, if I ended up being Ann Lee, there would have been three Ann Lees on the on the board of APABA. That's true. And it true. would have been too much. So um, at one point, teachers realized that I was going by different names in different classrooms. So I remember one of them came to me and said, OK, you got to choose what name you want to go by. And Sumi is a special name because my grandfather named me. And I just thought, as much as I want to be, have a normal, normal, quote unquote, American name, and I just want to be fit in just like anyone else. I just wanted to be named like Katie or like Jessica, something, you know, even though uh, kids used to make fun of my name all the time, I just thought I'm going to go by Sumi. So I think that's a powerful choice. And I think that is a big piece that has shaped you. And so let's talk a little bit about what made you go to law school? When I graduated from college, I was one of I just was one of those students that 
kind of fell late into choosing what I was going to do after college. And I went to school in D.C. and most of my classmates were going into consulting, were going into finance or going into law or working on the Hill in D.C. And what did you study for your undergrad? um, I was an English and government major. Government essentially is political science. That is impressive that you come from not speaking any English to being the English major. Yeah. I, I, that's not lost on me. Are you just like a linguist at heart? I don't think I'm a linguist at heart, but even when I was growing up in Korea, I loved creative writing. I would just make up stories all the time. I wrote poems. The first poem I ever wrote was about a dragonfly. I still have a copy of it. <laughs> love that you know it's I've always loved writing and so I think once I figured out the language I learned to um, write creatively and that was such an outlet for me that honestly I think creative writing is what got me through my teenage years do you still exercise any creative writing in your spare time I do Um, I take classes at Lighthouse Writers Workshop which is on Colfax and race and I've been a member there for over eight years Um, just taking lots of different types of creative writing classes. So going back to college. So you went to college in D.C. Um, It sounds like a lot of people after college did the traditional D.C. types of jobs. So what made you want to go to law school? Yeah, so at that time, I actually applied to work at a political PR firm. Talk about an interesting choice. And I think it was because I, again, I liked writing and I thought I could write persuasively and... You were going to be a spin doctor. I guess. (laughs) I don't think I really even understood what the job entailed, except it was going to involve writing and it was going to, you know, I was going to get to stay in DC, right? But I also was dating someone at the time who was going to law school and we thought, you know, let's go to law school together. It'll be great. You know, (laughs) have you seen Felicity? It's like how it happens. (laughs) It's Um, like the dating game of law school. So we studied for the LSATs together and we had this grand idea that we would go to law school together. And of course, I ended up at a law school in New York and he stayed in D.C. and we're not together. Which law school did you attend in New York? I went to New York Law School. Where is that? It's actually in Tribeca District of New York City. A lot of people confuse it for NYU, which I really appreciate because NYU is an excellent school, but it's a smaller independent law school in downtown New York. So you went from Seoul, South Korea, to Colorado Springs, to D.C., to New York City. Those are a lot of pretty different cities when it comes to the community, um, I guess the perception of those cities. What what was it that kind of drove you to move from Colorado Springs to DC and then to New York? Yeah, I what I also didn't share is that um, I actually ended up transferring my sophomore year of high school to go to a boarding school in Connecticut. So I was oh. already in the East Coast. And I went there when I was 16 years old. And again, that's only five years after moving to America, if you will. So lots of different changes. But I've always been very independent. 
and kind of new experiences. Here I come. Let's figure it out kind of person. So I really took energy from that. And I loved just seeing different cities and being in the East Coast and meeting different people. Um, and I've always wanted to live in New York once, you know, and it seemed like such a lively, energetic city. And I just thought, okay, this is really cool. Maybe I'll go to um, law school here. And of course, the joke is that I spent most of my time at the library and not roaming the city. So <laughs> so you have this independent upbringing where you get to go to, you get to go to boarding school and you get to have this freedom somewhat set on you and, and your own self-discipline guiding you. And then you get to go to these cool cities, New York and DC. How did you then end up in Colorado? So after I graduated from New York Law School, and let me preface it by saying I graduated in 2010, which we know was really uh, at the height of the recession, Mm -hmm. and jobs were really hard to come by. Um, My friends and I were applying for paralegal jobs and getting turned down because we had too much experience. I mean, that's how bad things were. And I don't have to tell you just how expensive it is to live in New York City and to try to make it. Um, So by the time I took the New York bar exam, I kind of knew that I wanted to come back to Colorado because I just really couldn't afford to live in the city anymore. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go home to Colorado, um, figure out how to apply for jobs from there, maybe study for the Colorado bar, um, and then establish a community and then maybe I can go back to the east coast um it's really hard to establish yourself in a legal community I feel that you didn't go to law school in so how did you bridge that gap when you moved back to Colorado and kind of immersing yourself into the legal community getting a job and kind of creating your own space here yeah no that's a good question and when I was in law school I always thought that I would go back to DC perhaps to work in policy and I'm using air quotes around policy because I just thought that like people somehow people who did policy were really cool but I had no examples of anyone who did that I didn't know anyone who went from (laughs) law school to working in policy and it was just an idea that I had right and so by the time I graduated I thought well I'm not even sure where to start what to I'm not sure what area of law I'm even interested in. Um, But one of the classes that I really loved in law school was trust and estates. And so, and I'd worked for a judge in Brooklyn um, who was uh, the surrogates court judge, who that's their version of probate court. So when I moved back to Colorado, I literally Googled Colorado probate something. I don't even know what happened, but I, I just Googled things and Denver probate court popped up and I thought okay it seems it seems that there's one court in Colorado that specializes in probate maybe I can work there and I also met Allie Gerkman um, at the same time Uh, she was one of the first people I met in the Colorado legal community and I mean what a person to meet as your first person and she was working at CBA at the time so she said you know the trust and estate section has this thing called Super Thursday where they all get together um, once a month and network you should go to that and so I showed up there and I said I think I want to do something related to probate Um, and I just started meeting attorneys and one of them said Denver probate court is looking for volunteers to help 
because they have such a backlog of cases. So they set me up with somebody who worked at the court, um, the now uh, magistrate Beth Tomerlin, and I just started volunteering there at the same time that I was studying for the Colorado Bar. I'm hearing this thread of fearlessness and spontaneity from you. And And adaptability. And adaptability, yes. I'm wondering if there's anything that you've thought of that you haven't tried. I'm not going to try skydiving. That's not something I'm interested in doing. (laughs) Okay, you're missing out. That's super fun, but... I'm not a height person, so... I mean, I would say, even for me now, at any networking event where you don't know most people, it is super scary to walk into that room and to talk to someone. But what I've learned over the years is that people are people. People actually, other might, other people might be feeling the same. And if you actually go up and say hi to someone, they're not going to say, oh, please go away. We don't want to talk to you. You know, so that's just something I've learned over time. But it's a feeling I, I still get from time to time, depending on the space that I walk into. But I just try to just take it one person at a time. So you sound like a very methodical person that is able to break bigger things into tinier things. Is that something that you have found has helped you in your career? That's interesting. I, I don't know if I see myself as such an organized person when I'm going through it. Um no, mostly it's, I, I, I might make it sound like I'm methodical, but mostly it's, uh, I try to be myself and to really connect with whoever I'm talking to. Like even when I was looking for a job and trying to find my way through the Colorado legal community, I never went through thinking, oh, I need a job or I need to, you know, get an interview. I just was like, I just want to talk to people and and see what the community is and see what's next. And so I just always led with curiosity, I think. But I think Nicole mentioned your adaptability. And I also hear in that you don't necessarily have a plan B. I'm going to go try this. I'm going to put my heart into it. If it works, great. If not, you're adaptable to whatever that path leads you to. And so it makes it very strong and powerful for where you go. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm also a you know trusted estates attorney who decided to kind of do a 180 or seemingly so and to now work in the DEI space, right? So that might be also something that people might look at and say, how does she do that? I actually get more questions about that now than anything else, probably. Well, then why do you do that? <laughs> you know, my belief is that no matter what it is that you might be doing for your day job, you know, that doesn't have to be where your that doesn't have to be the end all be all for all your passions. You know, you can still have something that you are personally invested in and, and interested in and that you should be pursuing um, and to go ahead and do that. And so I think even though the transition from trust and estates to what I'm doing now might seem very different, I'd been kind of been involved in these conversations throughout my career, whether it be through APABA, through CBA, um, through, you know, COBALT, different different conversations, I think, have led me to that. And I always saw every volunteer or committee or board involvement as a way to um, learn and to gain experience, even though it might be extracurricular. You mentioned um, approaching things with curiosity. 
And I think that's an interesting approach that probably isn't as commonplace as it should be. And my question to you is that, is that, does that help in not getting overwhelmed by certain situations or by new situations? Yeah. I mean, when I'm going through it, it's very overwhelming. You know, I'm not going to say the past year has been really easy or that I haven't had uh, moments where I've struggled or thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I need some help in this area. Um, But ultimately, I think I'm curious about people um, and people's stories. That's why I really love this podcast and why I want to be involved and why I essentially dove in and said, hey, I want to help, right? No one came to me and said, you should do this. I just was like, I raised my hand, right? Because it's really important to me. Just It goes to what I really believe in, which is everyone has a story. And ultimately, with every person I meet, I try to lead with that. You know, before I want to know what your job title is, Nicole, I want to know who you are. What was your upbringing like? You know, tell me about your family. That's what I am curious about in general as a person. And I feel like that's also how you make so so many authentic relationships with people as well. I, I know that you and I both get asked a lot of times, especially through the Asian bar and mentorship, like how, how do you network? How do you approach networking? And I feel like that is one commonality that you and I have as well is that we're just generally interested in people. There are some people who go to networking events with a hit list of people that they want to talk to who are partners of law firms. And these are the people that I need to meet. And I've never approached networking in that way. And it sounds like you never did either. Right. And I think networking gets a bad rep because it, seems like this you know theater that you have to put on or this different persona but at the end of the day people can sense when you are not being authentic and people whether it be work relationships or professional relationships people want to know who you are at the end of the day um so being authentic is probably one of the most important things to me that I keep doing. And I have to keep that in check to say, am I being authentic or am I doing this for the right reasons? That's something I try to keep myself in check. And this kind of segues into another question that I have with you in being an immigrant in a new country. When you're talking about being authentic in your life, especially during that transition, have you dealt with some imposter syndrome or you know, how difficult was it to find your authenticity, especially being an immigrant in another country. Absolutely. And, you know, as recent as the last couple of years, it has been not safe in some places to say you're an immigrant, mm-hmm. right? Um, there have been times where I have questioned whether I belong in this country. Um, the interesting thing about immigrants that particularly, I think, come over when they are, come over to the States when they are um, younger and they develop their sense of self perhaps here, I think is that when we go back to our home countries, we actually don't feel a sense of belonging that you think we do because we have been in America for a long time. So you have this challenge of not feeling like you belong in your home country or in your new country that you are, you reside in. And so my, some of the, um, So some of the imposter syndrome that I have felt was around, well, I say that I'm Asian American, but do I really feel a sense of belonging here in this country? Well, and I think that speaks volumes that you have this feeling of a woman with no country, right? And so 
when you say you don't feel welcomed, what are the things that you do to deal with that kind of a feeling? For me, it's been really important to connect with others who are in similar situations. Um, I remember, so Nicole will appreciate the story. I got asked by, I think, Byung-suk Sa and Chung Lei to go to the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Um, <laughs> the convention? The convention, right? It's a gathering of 1,600 Asian American attorneys at in one city for a long weekend. And and when they said, you know, you should come, it's a really good time. And I said, I'm not sure why I would want to go to such a thing. That's a lot of people, you know, just it's a lot of people. That's and a lot of attorneys. That's a that lot is. of attorneys. And I said, you know, I'm really happy being involved with the APABA at the local level. I don't think I need to go to that. Because I said, you know, in my head, I thought, you know, I'm not like one of those you know, who we typically think of stereotyping a little bit, the the quiet, you know, um, well-mannered Asian-American attorney. That's not who I see myself as necessarily. So I just was like, I'm not sure what to expect. But I went thinking this way that I was a little bit skeptical and I literally found 1,600 other people who feel exactly the same way. <laughs> yep. Well, in my experience with you, Sumi, is the first time I ever spoke with you on the phone because this is the first time we're actually seeing each other in person. I think we talked for a really long time and we immediately got to know each other very quickly. You are not shy. You're very open. You're very uh, relatable. And I don't know, we had all kinds of things to chat about. Yeah, no, and I really just enjoyed talking with you, even though I'd been given the task of, okay, tell Courtney what committee she is <laughs> assigned to. I just wanted to know who you were because I also saw that you're from, you know, Vail Valley and, you know, I have some extended family there. And so I just was curious about what your practice is like. So I just really enjoyed meeting you over the phone. Well, and I've enjoyed meeting you and I'm enjoying doing this podcast with you. But your your love of getting to know people and getting to know what makes them tick or what they're about, it's it's on this higher level. And I think you bring that into your job that you currently have. Tell us a little bit about how you utilize that to get the job done. No, absolutely. Um, I think a critical part of my job isn't just to work on maybe the policy issues. And that's so funny that we were talking about kind of coming full circle with policy. Policy uh, and making change at that level is very important. But what's also very important is for me to make sure that I am connecting with people who are on the ground trying to either enter the legal profession from a diverse community or a diverse attorney that's trying to apply to be a judge on the bench. It's it's very important for me to connect with people one-on-one. So um, a big part of my job is I, I want to talk to diverse judges that were recently appointed to learn about what their experience is, because that tells me what is working, what are some of the challenges, what are the barriers that I can work on. And I can only guess what that is from where I stand, and I can read a host of scholarly articles and you know books on it. But what really helps me is talking to people um, who are in those communities that I'm trying to connect with. So let's talk a little bit about what that role is when you say trying to help someone access the bench. Let's talk a little bit about what that process is and how you assist. Yeah, so uh, part of my job is focused on education and outreach efforts regarding the pathway to the bench. So um, I've been hosting a series of lunchtime discussions that dive into some aspect of the application process to become a judge. 
Um, and to just educate the public about how do you become a judge? Most people don't know that there's a judicial nominating commission and how they can get involved. And a part of my job is to build that longer term pipeline for more diverse attorneys to um, find success in the legal profession and to connect with law students and to figure out what the role of the judiciary is in doing that. And your job includes all of Colorado, right? Not just the Denver metro area. Yes. And it's been very challenging um, to connect with people one-on-one over Zoom versus going out on the field, which what I was hoping to do. Um, I started this job um, at the end of March. And so March of last year. March of 2020. March of 2020. So it's a great time to start a job. <laughs> um, it's definitely challenging. And, and to your point, I am much better connecting with people in person and face-to-face than over Zoom. I think it's one thing if you know the person already, you already have a relationship with them and to connect, but to call up somebody that don't know me from anyone in different part of the state and say, can you get on Zoom with me? It can be very scary to do, but I've tried to, again, make that human connection more than what am I asking of that person. And so uh, what's been great is that I've been able to build some relationships in all different parts of the state. And now I'm very excited to go meet them in person. Um, You know, I've made some really good connections in the San Luis Valley, um, some in the Montrose area, um, Fort Collins, you know, even even Arapahoe and Adams, which I've not been able to visit with some of the newer judges in those counties. Now I can do in person. So I'm very excited about that. How much travel will be become a part of your job now that we're reopening? I think uh, travel will be a significant part of it. I always envisioned this uh, position as not being somebody who's going to be in the office um, 40 hours a week typing on my computer, but more of a hybrid between some time in the office and you know going to meetings, and all, but also a significant amount being out on the field. And when you say being out of the office too, I know that you also meet with quite a few legislators. What role does that play in your job? So my position was funded by a bill that was passed through the Colorado legislature at the end of 2019. And it was part of the bill that also increased the number of judges in Colorado. So there are uh, members of the Senate and House Judiciary in the Colorado House and Senate that are certainly interested and wanting to get an update from me every year on what I've been working on, what are some of the successes, and talking to legislators is not something I'm used to doing, and again, can be very scary at times, but I try to think about, okay, what information are they looking for? I've also had to learn how to talk in a very condensed uh, manner because legislators don't have a lot of time to just chat. And I love to just chat and get to know somebody, but legislators just don't have that kind of time. So that's just something I've had to get used to. So you just have to get right to the point. How many judges are there in Colorado you work with? There are approximately 357 district court and county court judges throughout the state. Um, Sometimes that number changes depending on the number of vacancies. So when I heard you talking about meeting with different legislators and kind of having to restructure the way that you talk and kind of cutting out the small talk, I feel like this adaptability that we've talked about before maybe has started because when you came to the U.S. as a young child, you kind of had to pick up on a lot of 
um, physical or social cues in order to kind of understand what was going on. In addition, just by way, because the dictionary wasn't that quick of a process of translating. So do you think that that kind of that skill that you have kind of manifested early on because of immigrating to the U.S. and kind of being able to help you and facilitate in becoming um, a good conversationalist and somebody who's able to kind of connect with people quicker than maybe the average person can? By the way, I'm so flattered that you think that I'm a good conversationalist and that I come across authentically because, again, that's something that's so important to me. And so it just brings me joy to hear you say that. I will say part of that is the immigrant experience. Part of it is uh, the mother that I have who is also like this, who is a lifelong problem solver. Um, I think many parents who were who endure the post-Korean War also have this of you make it happen and you get it done. And my mom is somebody who ran the Boston Marathon for the first time at age 65. She, I did not know that. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, She is somebody who my parents just moved back to Colorado from being in California for a number of years. And my mom, within probably a month of being back, has already joined a Korean people hiking club. (laughs) So she is out and about already doing that. And, you know, she's a very social person. My dad is a complete opposite, but... I also learned some of this, I think, from my mom. And I know that you have a very close relationship with your mom to the extent that you've gone on vacation with your mom, too, which I love. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with her. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, uh, especially around my teenage years, I don't think we really saw eye to eye. You know, being the oldest uh, person in the family, there's a lot of expectations and, you know, wanting to make sure that I become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Um, You did? Well, yeah, I did one of those things. But (laughs) what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to do creative writing and do that. But I think at times I, I realized that's not a luxury you get to have sometimes when you have to provide for your family. You know, there's always that seed that, even though your parents are working hard in America, they're struggling and I can't just watch that and do whatever I want. I need to do the thing that's going to make money and provide for them. So I think I felt a lot of that pressure early on in my life and that strained our relationship at times because of that, even though she was supportive and was doing trying to do the best she can. So when I became an attorney and when I could afford to travel, which is what I've always wanted to do, I used that as an opportunity to build a better relationship with my mom. So we went to Spain together, just the two of us. Um, My sister was pregnant at the time, was kind of resentful for just us going, (laughs) but it was actually really nice. And we went to Madrid and Barcelona and It was a country that neither of us had been to, and we could just be in a space together. And so it's not an annual thing or anything, but I try to take opportunities like that, too. I took my mom to New York City once. It was her first time in the city, and my sister is still a little resentful that she wasn't 
invited to come. Well, it's interesting traveling traveling with moms. Uh, and I took my mom through Europe after law school. And of course, we came back on September 11th. So we got diverted four more days to Gander, Newfoundland. But I, I want to pick up on something that you talked about a little bit back there. You were talking about the need for being able to provide and, and the choices that you have to make with law school or, or different jobs you're taking. Did you ever have a job or a clerkship or anything where you thought... I really want to do this, but it's not going to really pay the bills. What, what do I have to weigh here? Yeah, that's the realities of a law school education, unfortunately. And that's something I've personally experienced and also think about a lot uh, when I think about trying to diversify the the clerkships, too, in, in, in Colorado Judicial. I, I want to just make sure that we are creating that pipeline early on and making sure that you know, diverse students are also finding success in working closely with judges. But it is not a well-paying position. I think when I was a clerk, it was paying about $45,000 a year, which coming out of law school, it's once you pay your student loans it's and your rent, you really don't have much after that. So when I was clerking, actually, at the Denver Probate Court, um, I worked at Cherry Creek Mall in a retail store. And I actually worked with two other law clerks and a judicial assistant in the same store. So it was like the evening shift at this one store in Cherry Creek Mall was essentially lawyers. The happening spot. The happening spot. But And I actually remember even helping um, attorneys like pick out a suit and feeling kind of like a loser to be honest like what am I doing here you know this is not what I pictured the legal profession to be you know this is not what you picture being an attorney to be and you know in, in some ways like feeling sorry for myself but I really now looking back treasure that because again it goes to show you that I try to make it work from wherever I am and you know, it's part of my story. So so let's talk a little bit about who you think you're going to be. What do you think you'd like to accomplish? So even though the initial focus of my job certainly is on increasing the number of diverse judges on our Colorado bench, what's becoming increasingly important in my job is making sure that we have the inclusion and equity piece built in as well. So I'm really working closely with um, the Judicial Well-Being Committee that Justice Marquez chairs that really tries to make sure that our diverse judicial officers are set up to succeed once they take the bench. It's just as important to me that, you know, we that the great uh, attorneys that we're asking to serve as judges feel like they can be who they are and find authenticity and find support once they take the bench. Otherwise, you know, I'm just bringing in great people and then there isn't a system to support them. So that part is something I am looking to build. Well, thank you, Sumi, for joining us today. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. We are so excited to have you on the team too. And thank you for everything that you do for our community and for the bench. It's extremely important and overdue. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I feel like this is kind of an audition to see if I would make the cut to host. Well, we didn't tell you that at the beginning, but... (laughs) 
(laughs) And I just want to say, Sumi, meeting you in person, you are so warm and inviting. All those people that you get to go see throughout Colorado are really have something in store for them. You're very kind. And it was really nice meeting you. And thank you for creating this space. I think it's really important to provide spaces where attorneys can tell their real story beyond their resume. So there you go. Thank you, Sumi. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Fulker. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.